Chapter One of God Goes to Murderer's Row by Reverend M. Raymond, O.C.S.C. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chief Price is uneasy. Guy Maupin trotted down the steps of the Fayette County Jail and swung jauntily along Short Street. A few dozen strides brought him to the city's police headquarters, where he pushed through the door, swept along the corridor, and quite airily entered the office of the chief of police. He found Austin Price with the morning herald spread out before him. Any bouquets for the detective department today, chief? Price's large head came up. His nod was both greeting and an invitation to be seated. Newspaper men know only one language, Guy. They are not complimenting us this morning, or any other morning. Well, after the roasting they gave us for about ten days, I thought they might be decent enough to... Decent? Austin Price was almost sneering. He sat back. What I'd like to know is why they picked on the city police for a job that belonged to the county patrol, and why they singled me out as a target and overlooked the sheriff. We cracked the case, Guy, but it really didn't belong to us. Of course it didn't. The Lexington Country Club is fully three miles from the city, but I'm not sorry we did the job. Neither am I, rejoined the chief. But why do the papers write us so? Wish I knew. Maupin pushed his hat far back on his head. What stops me completely is their silence on the speed with which we clean up the mess. Think of it. We are pulled from our beds on Sunday morning, September 28th, to find Marion Miley, nationally known golf star, sprawled out in her pajamas on the floor of her apartment at the country club, with a bullet in her back and another through her brain. Down the road, her mother, Elsie Ego, has just crumpled with three slugs in her stomach. By Wednesday, she's dead. And what have we to go on besides the two bodies? A messed-up bedroom, three slugs from a thirty-two automatic and a mattress, and two buttons from a man's coat. That was about all, wasn't it? said the chief. The smart newspaper boys tell the world it was an inside job. You were smarter. You told us it was local, and set me thumbing the files. In two days we knew exactly whom we wanted. Before the week was out, we had teletyped his description to every state in the Union. If the busybodies in the paper and on the phones had left us alone, we might have had him sooner. They gave us the tip on the car, objected Price quietly. Tip, snorted Maupin. We were told a newsboy had seen a two-tone Buick sedan parked at the club Sunday morning. Big help that was. It set us on the wrong track completely. It had us watching for a green Buick sedan, two ex-cons had stolen in Parrot, Georgia. No, Chief, the fact is you had nothing to go on but your own good gray matter. Yet the papers squawked as if the murderers had handed us their calling cards, and we were refusing them an interview. The local boys got sore because I established press conferences, said Price quietly. I was only trying to play square. Yeah, and they played square with you after that, didn't they? Headlines. Local police still in the dark, and FBI may be called in. Then silence for two full days. A slow smile stole across the chief's face. That hurt worse than the headlines, Guy. It was the old army game of killing a man by ignoring him. Well, we soon made them recognize us, didn't we? God gave us a break. I suppose he did. But if so, it is only another proof that God helps those who help themselves. Look at the facts. 
September 28th, a crime was committed. October 1st, you have nothing but two corpses on your hands. Yet, by October 9th, you have the criminal and his confession. Oh, not so fast, Guy, not so fast. We got the call from Fort Worth, Texas, October 9th, saying they had picked up a man answering the description we sent out. Come on, Chief. It said more than that. It said they picked up two men in a 1941 two-tone Buick sedan bearing Kentucky license plates. It said one of them was from Lexington. The man we wanted, Tom Penny. It said the other, Leo Gaddis, another ex-con, who worked in Louisville recently. It said a shell from the thirty-two automatic and a pair of women's sports shoes had been found in the rear of the car. Why, that call gave us everything but the confession. You'd never think so if you had gone to Fort Worth with me said the chief, as that same slow smile crossed his features. You never did tell me how you got the confession, chief. Was it hard to make Penny talk? Price shook his head. It's never hard to make Tom Penny talk, but to make him tell the truth is another story. He had been talking to, and laughing at, the police and newspaper men at Fort Worth for two days and two nights when I arrived there, Saturday, October 11th, but he had told them nothing. They had picked him up with Leo Gaddis and some woman on the ninth. The girl and Gaddis were soon discharged. Penny was held for me. He had denied all knowledge of the country club affair and given a reasonable account of his actions since leaving Louisville October 1st. But it was what he had been doing just prior to the first that interested me. Price rocked on his swivel before going on. I slept Saturday night. After early mass Sunday, I arranged to see Penny alone. They shut us in the room at nine o'clock. It was not quite one when I came out. For me, the probe of the Miley murders was over, but a greater mystery had begun. Yeah? Yes. Remember I had set you and the boys checking on Bob Anderson the minute we learned his was the car Penny had been driving when picked up? You found him at the Cat and the Fiddle, his nightclub in Louisville. He swore he hadn't left the place in weeks but we knew he had been charged with vagrancy at Newport, our next-door neighbor, just over a month ago, because he had been driving that Buick of his around with an ex-con and some shady characters as companions. Before I left for the South, I ordered you to watch him. Sunday afternoon, I told you to arrest him. Joe Hoskins did the job, Chief, and found Anderson as cool as a cucumber. He's one boy we'll never break. We don't have to. Penny squealed. So did Baxter. Yes, I suppose you can call it squealing. But it was only after Anderson had dealt as mean a double cross as I've ever seen. He told Penny to take his car to make his getaway, then reported the car is stolen. What a rat. Very appropriate. He'll fight this case to the last ditch, giving us plenty of trouble. With what? We've got the whole thing sewed up. Penny confessed to you in Texas, naming Anderson as the murderer. He confessed to us here in Lexington, after you brought him back, telling how Skeeter Baxter, the greenskeeper at the club, had hatched the whole plot. We picked up Baxter that very day. Last Friday, it was. In less than four hours, we had his confession. It tallied perfectly with Penny's. Saturday, Penny took us to where the guns were buried. We unearthed two automatics, a thirty-two and a thirty-eight. Yesterday I got word from the FBI that the markings on the slugs we sent and the slugs taken at the club are the same. So we've got the guns and the gunmen. What chance has Anderson got? Penny's been quite helpful. 
hasn't he? The question had been asked casually, but Maupin knew his chief. Price was noted for being a good listener. He seldom broke in on anyone. The identification head caught all that had been unsaid in the query, and wondered. He reached for his pipe, and while filling it, slowly said, I was with Joe Harrigan from eight o'clock last Thursday night until seven o'clock Friday morning. For almost eleven hours we questioned Tom Penny. Thank God the boy finally decided to tell the full truth. Otherwise, we'd still be there asking him questions and getting anything from a laugh to some of the cleverest and most cutting sarcasm I ever heard. That boy has a brain, a tongue, and very little love for officers of the law. Is it true, Guy, that the slug you took from the floor of the country club was from the thirty-eight? Uh-huh. And Penny claims he had the thirty-eight? Uh-huh. Then it looks to me that he will build his case on the fact that the only bullet he fired struck neither of the women. He showed me a letter he had written to his mother last Monday morning, and it he says something like this. Don't believe everything that is printed in the papers. As usual, they try to convict a person before he is tried. I can tell you one thing, mother, that may make you feel better. I am not guilty of murder. I have definite proof of that now. What do you mean? Maupin removed the pipe from his mouth. What you've just told me. He fired his gun, he admits. But you've proved that its bullet went into the floor of the country club. That won't keep him from the chair, said the detective, as he crossed his legs and smiled somewhat pityingly. The law takes care of that. Tom Penny may not have killed either of the Mileys, but he'll be found guilty of complicity. And that's enough. Why, Chief, I could prosecute this case myself and get the same verdict and same sentence for all three. They're going to ask for separate trials, you know. When the chief merely took off his glasses and polished them, Maupin went on. That will be a help to Jim Park in the prosecution, and whoever helps him. I suppose it will be Harry Miller. They'll be able to use Penny and Baxter against Anderson, and Penny against Baxter, if necessary. Price cleared his throat a bit noisily. I wonder if those two will promise Tom a life sentence for his testimony. They had better not. This town is hot over the case hot enough for a lynching. Mary Miley was not only pretty, she was popular. The chief's eyes narrowed. Maupin's guttural chuckle was pleasant to hear. No attempt will be made, chief. Penny's in Fayette County Jail, but Fayette County Jail is in the city of Lexington, and we're fairly civilized here. But tell me, what's on your mind? You're not yourself. It's not the wife, is it? She's all right replied Price, cold and calm by the query. The operation was only a minor one, and she's in the best hands possible. Sister Mary Laurentia, you know, is her blood sister. The detective stood up. So that nun up at St. Joseph Hospital is your sister-in-law, eh? I met her and a few others when I went down there about Mrs. Miley. She impressed me deeply. She does everyone, Guy. I'm going up early this afternoon to see the missus. Sister called me an hour ago to say everything was fine. What's on your mind, then? Tom Penny. He's as good as dead. That's precisely why I can't forget him. But look at the record he's had. That's exactly what makes me worry. Maupin pushed his hat further back on his head, took the pipe from his mouth, and spread his two hands on the edge of the chief's desk. Leaning toward Price, he said, 
I've never known you to go soft on any criminal, Chief. Why should this boy bother you? He's a bad actor. We've had him on our hands at least ten times, and five of them have been after his term at Frankfurt. He is a confirmed criminal. The city, state, and society will be benefited by his removal. Price's large head shook slowly in the cup of his two hands, as his elbows straddled the paper on his desk. I wonder what it is, he mused. It can't be heredity. That boy's father was a professor of English. His mother has something fine about her. She's run a rooming house ever since Tom's father died. It can't be environment. Not everyone in the same neighborhood, or even in the same gang, goes wrong. As for education, the only place youth gets educated into crime, it seems, is in our reform schools. It was there Tom met Anderson. Yes, Chief, objected Maupin, but that was not Penny's first time up. He had been sentenced to three years in 1926 for grand larceny. He served only two of them. When he met Anderson in 1934, he was supposed to be doing a twenty-year stretch for robbery and assault in 1930. He shot and wounded two men in that grocery store hold-up. Anderson was doing only a five-year stretch for storehouse breaking. Maupin's pipe was out. He puffed vigorously before reaching for a match. As he lit up again, he squeezed his question at Price. What's the story, Chief? You admit the boy's bad. You know he's going to die. You know he deserves it. Yet you're sad. Chief Price rose from his swivel chair and began to pace his office. Guy, what's the most important moment of life? Huh? Price stopped pacing and faced his friend. The most important moment in life is the last. The chief's knuckles struck his desk. I've just gone over Tom Penny's record in the files. He was found guilty of grand larceny when he was fifteen years old. That was in June 1924. From then till this day, the only years not marked with some criminal act are those he spent in prison. He was in our hands in 24, 25, and 26. We sent him to the reform school that year. He stayed until 1928 or 29. But as you say, in 1930 we had to send him up for twenty years. They let him out in 37. And we've had Tom Penny in here five times in the past five years. No, it's all too obvious Tom Penny has not lived right. But I'm going to do all in my power to see that he dies right. What are you going to do? asked Maupin in wonderment. The chief slumped into his large swivel chair. That's my mystery. I don't know what to do. Anderson will take care of himself. Baxter's a hophead. Can't do much for them. But Penny, I've known him since he was a child. How can I touch Tom Penny's heart? Guy Maupin knew when he was beyond his depth. This had been one of the strangest conversations he had ever had with Chief Price. Obviously, his superior was deeply concerned about a man who held little more interest for the police department. What should he say to ease himself out of a talk that was beginning to bewilder him? He decided to be blunt. Ah, oh, forget him, Chief. Levers don't change their spots. Once a criminal, always a criminal. Austin Price's head turned swiftly. His eyes were sparkling behind his horned-rimmed glasses. Did you ever hear of Dismas? Have we got his prince? I doubt it, though he was a criminal with a pretty bad record. Well, what about him? He ended the way I want Tom Penny to end.
How was that? Chief Price spaced his words deliberately. Dismas was convicted and sentenced to death. He died. But it is where I want Tom Penny to die. At the side of Jesus Christ. How can I get him there? End of chapter 1